This is the new Criterion. I'm James Pinero, executive editor. After two years in office, Trump's vocal critics are having a difficult time denying his many achievements, including a bustling economy, foreign policy successes, judicial appointments, regulatory reforms, energy independence, and a strong effort to curb illegal immigration, to name the most obvious ones. That's the conclusion of our guest today, James Pearson, in Trumping Right Along, his feature essay for the March 2019 issue of The New Criterion. Jim, welcome. Thank you, James. Happy to be here. Jim has been writing for The New Criterion since 2006. He is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and president and trustee of the William E. Simon Foundation. Trumping Right Along is his 33rd essay for the magazine. Jim also writes frequently for us online. His essays, both in print and online, are often our most widely read and discussed pieces of the month. So to start this discussion, Jim has offered to read a selection from his latest essay, one that is occasioned by a new book by Victor Davis Hanson titled The Case for Trump. Well, thank you, James. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson writes perceptively about the evolution of two Americas over the past few decades, not the division between rich and poor America that liberals like to portray, but the more profound cultural, economic, and political divide between coastal and cosmopolitan America against the more traditional and rural America of the vast continental interior. That split evolved in response to several large-scale factors globalization, the decline in steel and automobile manufacturing in interior cities, massive immigration, there are now 50 million immigrants living in the United States, growing inequality of wealth and incomes, and the general transfer of wealth, power, and opportunity from the interior of the country to bi-coastal elites. Naturally, the split was expressed in political terms as Republicans grew stronger in the interior states and Democrats in the coastal regions. The two Americas organized themselves around different political approaches. The Republican model emphasizing low taxes, lean government, and incentives for business and job creation, and the Democratic model favoring high taxes, generous spending for education and welfare, and politically powerful public employee unions. Over recent decades, Americans expressed their preferences by voting with their feet with businesses, retirees, and job seekers migrating to red states, while younger and college-educated voters move to coastal cities in search of diversity, multicultural lifestyles, and jobs in the entertainment and technology sectors. That internal migration accelerated the division between the so-called red and blue states. During the Obama years, most pundits assumed that the momentum in this conflict favored Democrats, as immigration, globalization, and changing technology added voters' wealth and influence to their coalition. This was a plausible view, given the failure of two mainstream Republicans, John McCain and Mitt Romney, to prevail over Obama's bicoastal and multicultural coalition. There was, in addition, a fair amount of cultural condescension in this assessment, as blue state elites looked down upon red state voters as, quote, deplorables, Hillary Clinton, 
or the dregs of society, quote-unquote, by Joe Biden, to signal their backward-looking ways and obsolete status in Obama's new America. Those voters were not only bound to lose, but they deserved to lose as well. Yet, as Hansen reminds us, Democrats lost significant ground during the Obama years in Congress and in states and towns across the country as their progressive agenda failed to win favor among a majority of voters outside the coastal cities. A slow-growing economy, hindered by Obama's tax and regulatory policies, was also a drag on his party's fortunes. Obama's victory in 2008 was not a ratification of progressive ideas, as Obama and the liberal media claim, but more accurately, an artifact of the unpopular war in Iraq and the financial meltdown that occurred in the middle of the presidential campaign in 2008. For all these reasons, Democrats went into the 2016 election in a much more vulnerable position than they imagined. Hillary Clinton was the perfect foil for a candidate like Trump, as she exemplified the corrupt establishment that he campaigned against. In addition, her defects tended to cancel out his own. If he was too old, then she was as well. If he was corrupt in his business dealings, then she was even more corrupt in her public dealings. For example, using the State Department as a pay-for-play operation on behalf of the Clinton Foundation. Moreover, Trump was, to use his terms, high energy, while she was low energy, often listless and in hiding during the campaign. Trump appeared gross and unmannered, all too blunt in his assessment of people and events, and boastful about his wealth and business holdings. Clinton often appeared prim, albeit inauthentically so. He spent his life in the real estate business. She was a creature of government. If it was said that Trump had extramarital affairs or mistreated women, then he could truthfully say that so had the Clintons. Trump, no matter what one thought of him, was the genuine article. Clinton had changed her political persona several times after she emerged as a public figure in the 1990s. She appeared first as an angry feminist, then later matured into a sober-minded member of the establishment, voting for the war in Iraq as a senator in 2002 and courting Wall Street bankers during her years in Congress and in her presidential campaigns. In her primary campaign against Obama in 2008, she thought the, sought the votes of white working-class voters in industrial states. But by 2016, she had changed her stripes again, turning her back on these voters in a campaign to solidify Obama's multicultural coalition. Clinton thus came off as a phony who would say and do anything to win office, much in contrast to Trump, who, with his tweets and off-the-cuff remarks, seemed an equal opportunity offender. As Hansen suggests, Clinton may have been the only plausible Democratic candidate whom Trump could have defeated in 2016. At the same time, Trump may have been the only plausible Republican candidate who could have beaten her by carrying those working and middle-class voters in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Ohio. Jim, I want to go back and ask about your 2015 book, Shattered Consensus, subtitled The Rise and Decline of America's Post-War Political Order, published by Encounter Books. The book came out of an essay you wrote for the new Criterion in June 2012 for our special series called Future Tense. And here you write, The United States has been shaped by three far-reaching political revolutions. 
Thomas Jefferson's Revolution of 1800, the Civil War, and the New Deal. Each of these upheavals concluded with lasting institutional and cultural adjustments that set the stage for new phases of political and economic development. Are we on the verge of a new upheaval, a fourth revolution, that will reshape U.S. politics for decades to come? There are signs to suggest that we are. In fact, we may already be in the early stages of this 21st century revolution. Jim, I wonder if you would tell us more about this thesis and now looking back how the Trump presidency fits into it. Uh, that sounds prescient uh, in retrospect, <laughs> uh, probably more so than I thought, uh, though I have to admit I, I did not anticipate Trump. Though I guess I could say it was a situation where I saw uh, that the tinder was dry and susceptible to uh, 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 flames. So uh, I think I saw during the Obama years that the consensus that had shaped American politics in the post-war era was breaking up. And the two parties were dividing uh, along cultural, economic, regional, and ideological lines. And uh, that things were shaping up into a, uh, a battleground between these, these, these two parties that were widely diverging that cannot compromise anymore. One of these parties, uh, I felt, had to, had to shape a majority to take us into the future. Otherwise, we're going to face uh, a stalemate uh, over the long run. And I think that's obviously continued to happen. I mean, if you look at a lot of the numbers about polarization and voting behavior, America is divided up into two different countries, really. You've got, uh, you've got uh, red state America and blue state America. And you find very few competitive states and competitive congressional districts in between. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson is certainly right. People have voted with their feet and have created this division in America. And not only that, the parties, when they send their representatives to Congress, they, they can't talk to one another. They can't make deals. They can't negotiate. Uh, it's as if they're representing different countries. So this is a very, uh, a very bad situation. Uh, I've been asked, well, how did this happen exactly? It seems a little bit odd because we won the Cold War. Uh, the market system prevailed over all the alternatives in the post-war era. You know, the stock market has been booming for 35 years. We've had this amazing technology that we all have now. Why is this happening in America that otherwise seems to be doing quite well? And, you know, it's, it's very hard to answer. It might well be that without any external enemies, Americans have decided to turn on themselves. Uh, you, you do have that problem. I would point to all in addition uh, what I would call the two revolutions of the post-war period. One would be the, the cultural and political revolution of the 1960s. So here was, here was uh, a very prosperous America of the 1950s, and for a lot of reasons, uh, faced with this upheaval, which is both cultural and political in the form of the Great Society in the 1960s. So we expand government greatly, uh, and we had this revolution uh, against traditional mores in terms of sex and the family and uh, relations between the sexes. Uh, and of course, we had the civil rights movement as well. Uh, but this was a 
a, in terms of cultural uh, behavior, this is a liberty-inducing uh, upheaval of the 1960s. Feminism comes out of it. Uh, gay rights uh, comes out of it. And those things continue to unfold uh, in recent decades, as we've seen. That's one. Uh, that revolution tended to find a home in the Democratic Party in the 1970s. So the, the Democratic Party became extremely liberal in a, from a cultural point of view, now adding on to the fact that it was liberal from an economic point of view. Now we get a second revolution in the 1980s, the so-called market revolution. So we reduce taxes, we reduce regulations, um, and we uh, turn the stock market loose for a long-run bull market. Uh, and... Uh, Communism also comes to an end in that decade because of the Reagan military buildup and so on. So this was also a, a freedom-friendly movement, but of a different kind in terms of economic freedom. So in the 1960s, we, we uh, reduced uh, cultural restraints on individuals. And in the 1980s, we reduced economic restraints. So in a sense, they were both uh, uh, liberty or freedom friendly from uh, uh, different points of view. Uh, this revolution finds a home in the Republican Party. And both these parties look back to these decades as, as uh, groundbreaking periods, as reference points. Uh, the 60s for the Democrats, certainly, for the great society, civil rights, and cultural liberalism. Uh, Republicans for the economic dynamism that's turned loose in the 1980s. So these two rivers, as it were, continue to flow in the years after the Cold War ends uh, into the two rival political parties, and they've tended to create kind of hostile coalitions against one another. That would be uh, an additional answer as, as to what's happened here. Now, you could ask the question, what's going to happen? Um, you know, I would say that uh, it's hard to see either of these prevailing uh, very easily. We could be in for a long period of stagnation and stalemate in American politics. Uh, would that be bad? Uh, maybe not. Uh, the, uh, the stock markets like it when, uh, when Washington is paralyzed and can't do anything. Um, on the other hand, you know, if real crises come up, America's the government is going to have to find a way to address them. And if the parties can't compromise and want to exploit that, we're not going to be able to find it. We're also in what I would call a post-national period. So with the, uh, the collapse of the end of the Cold War and with the globalization of the international economy, uh, Americans, it's not just Americans, people all over the world are less referential to their nation states. There are public opinion polls that show that Americans over the last 20 years or so feel less pride in their country than they once did. The Gallup polls are tracing this. So, uh, and of course, the coastal elites are very much looking outward to the global economy. We have a record number of immigrants in the country. Uh, the old European America is kind of dying away. And that's also a factor. So, uh, the glue that has held uh, America together, really since the end of the Civil War, in terms of the nation state, 
uh, all of that is coming undone, I think, in this in this period we're now living in. So you mentioned a liberty-inducing revolution of the 60s, a market revolution of the 80s. Is there a defining theme of our current upheaval, or is it too early to say? I think it'd be hard to put your finger on uh, uh, any one particular thing. I mean, the parties have diverged. They have uh, completely opposite views on, for example, the immigration issue. I would say if we had to identify one thing that's driving this, I would say the, the immigration issue and then the globalization issue of the economy. Those two intersecting things seem to be driving the divide in the resentment and the anger that we have out there. And those are the two issues that got Trump elected. And it's an international phenomenon. Very much so. We see it in, in Europe uh, with, uh, with Brexit, and uh, you know, we see it in Germany. And uh, so, uh, yes, this is happening all over the place in, in different ways in, in the West, certainly. Jim, you are a historian of presidents and presidential politics. You've taught government and political thought at Iowa State University, Indiana University, and the University of Pennsylvania. We happen to be meeting on the day that Michael Cohen, a former Trump attorney, is testifying before Congress. One side of the aisle sees an invalid executive. The other side sees an invalid prosecution. What are your thoughts on these hearings? Well, uh, uh, James, I think this uh, kind of illustrates what we were just talking about. So uh, Trump's election was certainly a surprise to everyone on both sides. However, it has created a reaction in America of the kind that we have not seen since Abraham Lincoln's election in 1860. When Abraham Lincoln was elected, the American South said, we're not going to tolerate this. This is an insult to us. And if you're going to elect a candidate like this as president, we're going to leave the union. Well, that didn't happen this time. But basically, the Democratic side of the political spectrum says, we're not going to accept the, this outcome, and we're going to do everything we can to reverse it. And this has not really happened before. Uh, usually the idea is that, you know, we'll, we'll organize to defeat him the next time around. But we've had this effort in the Mueller prosecution and now in these hearings to somehow discredit uh, and hopefully reverse the election of 2016. Now, it can't be reversed. It could be discredited. And uh, I think that's the hope of the Democrats as they lay the groundwork for the next election in 2020. So, uh, you know, you could say, well, why isn't the Congress trying to solve some of the problems of America? Like whether it's infrastructure or foreign policy questions or the debt that we have or whatever. Why are they spending all this time on this problem? Well, I, I think it just points to the fact that these two parties are now representing almost different countries. And the question is, going forward, what's going to happen? I mean, Democrats will eventually elect a president. Uh, will Republicans behave toward that president in the way that Democrats have behaved toward this president? Now, Democrats voted en masse against all of Trump's cabinet appointees and against all of his judicial appointees, almost without exception. There have been one or two Democrats that flipped. Now, should Republicans reciprocate? If they hold a majority in the Senate, 
a Democratic president would not be able to fill a cabinet. And you could say, if Republicans don't reciprocate, then Democrats are free to do it in the future. They almost have to reciprocate uh, as a deterrent. So it's a kind of a tit-for-tat universe that we've moved ourselves into, and we could ask the question, how do we get out of it? Well, you know, maybe a crisis could get us out of it, an economic problem of the kind we had in 2008, uh, a foreign policy problem like a terrorist strike, or maybe we could elect what might be called a patriot president. What do I mean by that? Well, uh, in the 1700s, Lord Bolingbroke wrote a, an essay called The Idea of a Patriot King. And his idea was that we need a king who can stand above the political factions and parties that have evolved uh, in 18th century England, who were dividing the country, and from his point of view, misgoverning it. So we needed a patriot king. Well, now we've got a situation where the, we, ha we are electing ideological presidents. Uh, Barack Obama became the progressive president, and Donald Trump uh, has become obviously a polarizing figure because of his politically incorrect comments, but he's become really a conservative president, I would say. Uh, even more polarizing than other conservative presidents. So the parties have divided, the country has divided into red and blue states, red and blue countries. Is there a possibility that you could elect a president who could somehow stand in the middle and bridge this divide? Well, it was within our lifetimes, only 1984, where Ronald Reagan carried 49 states. Yes. So you think we could see those times again? Um, you know, um, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that. I guess I'm thinking of these, these, uh, these independent candidates who are jumping in, mm -hmm. like the head of Starbucks, Howard Schultz. Uh, Bloomberg has thought about jumping in. Uh, if the parties go too far from one side or the other, does that open up space for another candidate? Problem is, how does a candidate like that govern the country? Because they don't have a team to bring into office with them. They can try to be bipartisan. Uh, but in the nature of things, that's going to be difficult because the parties might avoid them and so on. This was Trump's problem. Trump, as a renegade candidate, uh, did not bring a team in with him. And when he got elected, he had to fill up his administration with people who, you know, were not part of his campaign. He had to go and find people. Usually when you elect a candidate as president, you elect a party and they bring their team in. But Trump didn't have that. And, of course, Trump's advisors had studied the independent candidacies of Ross Perot. And Trump, in a sense, was our first independent president candidate. I, yeah, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. And he was elected by a revolt of the voters. Mm -hmm. None of the elites was for him. He was not propped up by any uh, set of wealthy people or, mm -hmm. or powerful people. He did this all on his own. And the voters flocked and, and elected him. And, took, and he took on both parties successfully, didn't he? Yep, he did. And he carved out a space. And he did it differently, as Victor Davis Hanson points out in his book, because uh, Trump attacked uh, the global economy, which Republicans have always defended. He said he would defend Medicare and Medicaid uh, and Social Security. These are Democratic issues, uh, which those working class voters and Pennsylvania and other states like. So, yes, he carved out a position kind of in the middle. He was different because he was just so politically incorrect about the things that he said, but he also was running against that. 
because he said this is destroying the country. So, uh, yes, but look, the country continued to be polarized even more so. And I'm not sure that I see an easy way out of where we are. Well, speaking of which, the shattered consensus that you observe between left and right is now reflected in the fracturing of the conservative movement. Uh, the post-war consensus on the right has broken around the election of President Trump, where we have seen all in for Trump to never Trump and perhaps never, never Trump and never, never, never Trump. In 2017, I remember an early indication of conservative disunion at a panel discussion hosted by the Manhattan Institute that featured you, Roger Kimball, F.H. Buckley, Peter Thiel, Rich Lowry, and Bill Kristol. The panel was called Realignment, Will America Forge a New Political Consensus? And judging by the discord of Bill Kristol, the answer to that question at the time seemed to be no. Will the right forge a new political consensus? Has one already started to meld around President Trump? Uh, excellent question, uh, James. Uh, obviously, Ronald Reagan did build a new consensus in the Republican Party. Uh, in the 1980 election, that was not evident because there was a third party candidate who ran in that race, too, in the person of John Anderson, who was a liberal Republican. And uh, he, he siphoned some votes from both parties, but didn't make much of a difference. Reagan won that election on a landslide. But the point would be that going into the 1980s, there are a substantial uh, frac faction of liberals or progressives in the Republican Party, 10 or 20 percent of them. And they were represented in the Congress and in governorships as well. By the end of the 1980s, they were gone. So the Republican Party, by the end of the 1980s, became a conservative party. And that's continued uh, to the point where it's very hard to find many progressives or liberals in the Republican Party. Uh, so, yes, that did happen uh, in the 1980s. Now, Trump has exposed a kind of a split uh, with his uh, attacks on globalization. Uh, and his defense of some of the big spending great society programs. Uh, uh, it's a good question. I mean, look, Trump won election by appealing to some Democrats. Can those Democrats be brought into the fold permanently? Uh, that may well be the case. I think it would be the key to future Republican victories in presidential races to keep them in. So that would be the consensus in the Republican Party. The consensus would be uh, we're going to be nationalistic. Uh, we're going to be skeptical of globalization. And we're going to defend the entitlement programs, particularly for old age people. And so Trump essentially defined a new coalition that could win. Yes, he did. He did. But it's not winning by much. Uh, you know, the country is very closely divided. Uh, so he got 46 percent of the vote and Clinton got 48 percent of the vote. He got his votes in the right places. He got pretty much he got pretty much the same vote as McCain and, and Romney had gotten in 08 and 2012. But he got them in different places. So if you look ahead into the 2020 race, uh, Trump has kept that coalition together, it would appear. They did lose the Congress, uh, but that were, was special circumstances surrounding that. In the 2020 race, there will be a choice uh, between a Democratic candidate and a Republican candidate. Trump has kept his coalition together, um, and it's hard to know what the Democrats are going to do. There are so many candidates. 
it looks to me like the energy in that party is way off to the left on the progressive side. The likelihood is they'll nominate someone who's endorsed the Green New Deal and Medicare for All. And historically, that's what the Democratic Party does. Certainly so. And it's, uh, you know, when we elect presidential administrations, we often elect them for eight years, very few exceptions. So I guess I would guess that assuming the economy stays uh, going well and we don't have a war and the Democrats nominate a far left progressive, uh, that Trump would be well positioned. Now, there are a lot of imponderables there. Uh, will there be an independent candidate out there? And who will that independent candidate hurt? There is an effort by never Trumpers to challenge Trump in the primaries. I don't think that will succeed, uh, but they may try. Uh, just unseat Trump and the Trump era, put a Democrat in office and they can start over. I don't think that's wise from a conservative point of view, but uh, that's what they're thinking. Uh, so, you know, those, those, those would be the thoughts going, in, going into 2020. And kind of looking back on 2016, when Trump was running, I thought, you know, this fella has no chance to carry a national election. And that was really what worried me. And But as Victor Davis Hanson writes in this excellent history of the election in Trump, uh, Trump was the only candidate probably could have beaten Hillary Clinton. The others would have never carried Pennsylvania, and therefore they would have lost. Jim, your connection to the new criterion is as close as anyone's. Not only are you the chairman of the board, like Frank Sinatra of the publication, you were also there at the beginning. I wonder if you could take us back to 1982 and tell us your role in the founding of the new criterion. <laughs> yeah, well, that does take us back a long ways, James. So, uh, yes, uh, you might have been in grade school at that time. <laughs> I think I was. Uh, so, yes, uh, actually, I played a minor part in it, but I was a witness present at the creation, as they say. <clears throat> Uh, this was a creation of Mike Joyce, who was then the president of the, of the uh, Olin Foundation, John M. Olin Foundation, and Samuel Lippman, the late Samuel Lippman, uh, who was a music critic, and Hilton Kramer, who was the uh, arts editor of the New York Times, and very well-known author and essayist. And there was an idea that really what we needed was a high-level uh, publication, monthly publication in arts and literature and music uh, to rival the liberal publications which dominated the scene. <clears throat> so three foundations got together to put up the funds for it. Uh, the Scaife Foundation, the Smith Richardson Foundation, and the John M. Olin Foundation. And there were a few other smaller donors. I think in some we put up around $400,000 per year which seems like a small sum now, in retrospect, but that was enough to lure Hilton Kramer from the New York Times in 1981 to start the magazine up. At that time, the new criterion had its offices in the back of the offices of the Olin Foundation. So the Olin Foundation, where I was recruited as a staff person at that time in 1981, had an office at 57th and Park Avenue in the Olin Corporations building, which was given to us by the Olin Corporation. John Olin was still alive. And we had enough space to put the new criterion in the back. That saved some money. So 
Hilton Kramer came into work every day, and Eric Eichmann uh, was the managing editor, I think. And there are a couple of other employees who were there in the office at the time. And Samuel Lippman would show up periodically. It was very interesting uh, to have that group around. So the magazine uh, began in uh, September of 1982 with the first issue. It took about a year of preparation. Hilton Kramer uh, wrote the introductory essay, which is still very much worth reading. So here we are. 30, almost 37, year, 37 years later, uh, the new criterion is, is not only going, it's going strong. Uh, I'm very proud of the role that I've played in, with the new criterion. I'm delighted to see it's doing so well. Uh, I know that it's, it's, it's in uh, very good financial shape right now. It's in great editorial shape uh, with Roger Kimball at the lead and with an able staff, you among them, uh, putting out a great magazine. Um, month after month, Roger Kimball came along, I think, in the mid-1980s, I think. Uh, by that time, the magazine had moved to new quarters, and uh, Roger began writing. I met Roger. And I forget exactly when Roger came on full-time, sometime in the 90s, I think. And indeed, here we are, grateful for what you, Hilton, Sam, Mike, and others created. You've been listening to The New Criterion, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and NewCriterion.com. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. My guest today has been James Pearson. A frequent contributor to The New Criterion, Jim is a Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow and President and Trustee of the William E. Simon Foundation. His recent books include Camelot and the Cultural Revolution, How the Assassination of John F. Kennedy Shattered American Liberalism, The Inequality Hoax, and Shattered Consensus, The Rise and Decline of America's Post-War Political Order. Trumping right along, his latest feature appears in the March 2019 issue of The New Criterion. Jim, thank you for joining us. Thank you, James.